Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? In other words, if you want miracles in Lubbock, what do you have to do? You've got to hear the, with the hearing of faith. And God will supply the Spirit and he will work miracles here. Amen? It's that simple. Anybody can do it. I'll read it really. Actually, it's nobody that does it. It's God that does it. But it requires the channel of faith. <laughs> Amen. Come on. In Galatians 3, come down to verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The only way to become Abraham's son is by faith. You can't get there by any hereditary line. Hello? So the natural Jews have to come the same way that we come. And once they've come, we're all the same. We're all sons of Abraham by faith. Some of us have a Jewish background, some of us have a Gentile background. That ceases to be relevant once you come to faith. Without faith, your hereditary line doesn't help you, and with faith, your hereditary line doesn't matter. Amen? It's faith. Hallelujah. Alright, stay in there. Alright. Therefore, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would cause the believers to have large houses, big bank balances, and drive around in Cadillacs. Is that what it says? The scriptures foreseeing, listen, that God would justify the nations by faith. Now, it's, I mean, and I'm not against this. If you need a Mercedes, and God said in the heavens, have one, then by all means go and get one. I'm not against Mercedes. You can have a different coloured one every day of the week if you want to. That's not a problem. But, but listen... The real purpose of faith is not to get things to live to a higher standard of living. That's not what it's all about. The purpose of faith is to see all of God's word fulfilled upon the earth. See, it's talking here about justifying a nation by faith. You see, if you can get faith for America, you can be the channel that God's looking for to save the nation. Amen? Now, that's where I want to focus. Now, when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 6, verse 33, what did he say? Seek first a bigger house and a better car, and then give what's left over to missions. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It says, seek first of all the kingdom, the rule, the government of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be yours as well. God isn't going to shortchange you on material things but that's not the heart of what faith is all about. Faith is to bring the word of God across the nations. To take back the world from this illegal usurper who's still trying to kid us that he's the prince of this world when he's not. To demonstrate to the world that he has already been judged and to kick him out of town. Hallelujah. Amen. Little little nobodies who've got faith are more than a match for the devil. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. Say, God, my passion is to see your kingdom come, not to get a better and better lifestyle. I want to see Lubbock saved. It's no great deal to me whether I have ten Italian suits or whether I don't have any of them. It's seeing Lubbock saved. It's seeing the power of God break up on this place. And I don't mind living reasonably well on the side. But that's not the issue. I'm not calling you to poverty. I'm just calling you to priority. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. I'm sure you know it off by heart. But it says, His grace is is able to abound towards you so that always having all sufficiency in all things, you may have abundance for every good work. So you live in sufficiency, but you have abundance for the work. Your passion for the kingdom should be greater than your desires for yourself. Seek first the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And so it's possible to come to faith for a nation. You can get a title deed for a nation. You can get a title deed for a city. You can get a title deed for whatever you hear God clearly say to you. And I want you to start saying, God, I want to start getting title deeds. As I said this morning, number one is your own family. Get your kids saved in spirit, even before they're born. Get them. Say, I've got the title deed for my kids. They're going to serve Jesus. The devil's never going to put his dirty hands on them. But then you can start getting title deeds for other things. Just come to Acts 3. Just pick up a verse there. When the Spirit of God broke upon the city of Jerusalem, and that city, listen, that city which resisted the teaching of Jesus, which resisted the life of Jesus, which resisted the miracles of Jesus, at the end of three and a half years of ministry, was Jerusalem changed by the ministry of Jesus? Well, hardly. Was it just as politically corrupt? Yes, it was. Was the religious system just as entrenched? Yes, it was. Were, was Jerusalem shaken? No. What happened was 120 people were obedient enough to meet him in the upper room. The rest of them didn't even go there. He had possibly 500 disciples, if you believe 1 Corinthians 15, but only 120 of them were obedient enough to meet him in the upper room. So if you think about it, the ministry of Jesus was no more successful in Jerusalem than your ministry is here in Lubbock. Hello. Until the church was born. See, that wasn't a, it was God's plan, because he wanted to give us a demonstration. He said, I'm going to give you a formula for taking any city. If I did it through Jesus personally, then you would have an excuse. But if I take a bunch of nobodies who come to faith and, and have a, a loudmouth idiot like Peter preach a message in a city that would not respond... Hallelujah! In a city that would not respond to Jesus, he opens his mouth after the church is born, after the Spirit has come, after they have come to faith, and he opens his mouth in the same city, and 5,000 people turn to the Lord. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Now can you see where we're going? 
You see, because it was a nobody like Peter, and because it was that embryonic church, God can say, right, now you can go and reproduce this anywhere in the world. If it was Jesus, he said, oh, well, it was Jesus, what could we do? You, you can do the works that he did. But Peter demonstrates that when the church comes to faith, when the church moves in the power of the Spirit, demonic forces, religious demons that were are ten times stronger than anything you've got here in Lubbock, they trembled and fled at the power of that church. Because you see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, went to heaven and sent down the Spirit, he gave birth to the seed. The seed was first manifested in Jerusalem. Do you understand that? The seed began to take hold of its possession and the seed got the title deed to the city of Jerusalem and soon the city was shaking under the power of these men. And so God says, well, if you've got the same faith as Peter, why don't you go and do the same thing? If you're the same seed, why don't you do a little bit of inheriting? Why not go and get a few title deeds? Before long, tens of thousands of people in that same city were now believing the civil authorities, the religious authorities, were shaking under the power of this thing. And they were soon accused of, of turning the world upside down. Amen? And that's a demonstration for all of us. Come to Acts 3 because Peter is giving an explanation of this. And he comes down to verse 24 and he says, All the prophets from Samuel and all those who followed, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets. He uses a particular Greek word. The word is huios. It's one of nine words that could have been used, and this word particularly has to do with inheritance. In fact, the NIV translates it, you are the heirs of the prophets. Amen? You're the heirs of the prophets. You see, all that the prophets have said, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What they said in words was an approximation to what God was saying in their spirit. What they articulated in their prophecies was inadequate to convey what they were hearing in their spirit. Have you ever prophesied? Have you ever found how difficult it is to find words to speak what you feel in your spirit? And even when you've spoken, you think, well, that's not really it. I can't find the words to fully say it. Now the prophet spoke and it was written down the nearest approximation in words to what God was saying in their spirit. But as they were prophesying, God was speaking in the heavenlies and establishing by the power of his word every word in its full glory and its full power that had come approximately out of the mouth of the prophets. Have you got it? And it's hanging there throbbing with the power of God's eternal life waiting for someone to go and get hold of it by faith and say I'll have that I'll have that and I'll have that and I'll have that and by faith I'll get hold of it and I'll pull it down into my city and into my generation and see the fulfillment of that word And that's what was happening in Jerusalem. So here's Peter. He says, All the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have have spoken, have also foretold these days, and you are 
the heirs of the prophets. In other words, all that they've said is your inheritance, why don't you go and cash some of it? Why don't you go to these spiritual warehouses and pull out all they said and say, right, we'll have that, we'll have that, we'll have that, and we're going to see that manifested. Then he goes on to say, not only are you the sons of the prophets, but you're also sons of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hallelujah. Now this promise that God made to Abraham is repeated seven times in the Old Testament. Every time God develops the covenant or he renews the covenant, he makes it very clear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob that the heart of the covenant is this promise. Through you, or through your seed, every single family on the face of the earth is going to be blessed. And if that doesn't happen, frankly, God has not kept his word. That's why it says earlier in Acts 3, heaven must receive Jesus until the time of the fulfillment of all these things. See, Jesus cannot come until God's kept his word. Jesus cannot come until that covenant promise to Abraham's seed is manifestly worked out upon the face of the earth. Now this word, this word family, all the families of the earth, it's either families of the earth or it's sometimes called the nations of the earth, but usually the word is family. The, the Hebrew word, if you want to write it down, is mish. Mishpokor, M-I-S-C-H, I'm sorry, M-I-S-H, M-I-S-H, P-A-C-H, A-C-H, Mishpokor. Does that make any sense to you? Okay. Well, this is what it means. If you go through the Old Testament, which I have done, you'll find it comes 307 times. And so you can get a good idea of what it means. And it's used and translated tribe, clan, people's group. You see, it's not talking about a natural family, mum and dad and two kids. That's not what's being talked of here. It's an ethnic group. And what it basically means, it's a community of people who gathered together with something that holds them in common. It could be a, a common inheritance, it could be a common heritage, it could be a common ethnicity, it could be a common language, it could be a common culture. Something makes them identifiably a people's group. Now what God has said, is, he, said he said, I have promised Abraham covenantally that every single mishpachor on the face of the earth has to be blessed. I've sworn by covenant, I've repeated it seven times in the Old Testament, about another four or five times it's referred to in the New. Surely, surely, surely God means he's going to keep this promise. So that means every family, every people's group, every, every little community, every identifiable clan, tribe, ethnic group, it's going to have to be blessed. So the question is, what does that mean? Well, the answer is in verse 26. Read verse 26. And it says there, it says, To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. So there's the blessing. 
there's the blessing. What it means is that vast numbers have to be saved of every people's group, of every community, of every identifiable family, tribe, clan, or people's group. Otherwise, God's not kept his covenant promise to Abraham. And all that happened in Jerusalem was we saw the first ever fulfilment of that promise. That's what we saw. What happened in Jerusalem meant that God said, right, I'm going to do this to the Jews in Jerusalem to give you a taste of what it's like when my covenant promise is fulfilled in every single family on the face of the earth. So that means that America, with all its variety of mishpacors, and you can think of the drug culture as a mishpacor. It's got its own culture. Think of the mafia. That's a definite culture, isn't it? Well, they're going to be blessed. Amen? Just think of all those godfathers turning to Jesus and using all their expertise that they presently used for all kinds of wickedness to suddenly use it to serve the kingdom of God. I tell you. And all the money. We may have to pray over it to cleanse it, but after that we can use it. It's awesome, isn't it? That's what it says. It says, your seed, in your seed, or through your seed, that's the means I'm going to use to make this happen. So you need, you and I, you don't start just praying, oh, I'm going to believe God for a new Cadillac or a new house. That's okay, but that's trivial compared with these great issues. This is where I want to use my faith. I want to start taking cities for God. Amen? That's a much, much more glorious use of our faith. There was a young man, his name was James Fraser. He was 22 years of age when he finished an engineering degree at Imperial College London. This was in about 1927, I think it was. He never went into engineering. He went off to southwest China and was a missionary with the China Inland Mission. And he was there in this tribal area known as the Lishu. They'd never had anybody visit them. He was the first person to go to that tribe and preach Jesus to them. He wrote a regular weekly letter home to his sister and praise God she kept them. And they've been put together in a book which I've read and uh, Isabel Kuhn, if you remember Isabel Kuhn, she followed on in the next generation into that tribal group. Well, he records the battle to come to faith for that tribe. He was there for six years. Twice he was nearly died of sickness. Twice he was driven out by political unrest. He would get a few people saved, but they'd always be sucked back into the power of that demonic culture. None of them ever stood. He never got a church started. At times he almost despaired, but he would keep coming back. God told me to go there, and God is going to give me this people. After six years, he comes to faith. And he's, the whole language of his letters changes. Nothing happens, but now he knows he's got them. He's got the title deed. He knows God's going to move. It's just a matter of time now. In the eighth year, two years later, and his letters change into a positive confession of what God... He can, he can see it now. It's reality to him. He's got the substance of the things hoped for. He's got the evidence of the thing. Still not yet seen, but he's got the convincing proof of it. 
in the eighth year, that just like any other day, there was a knock on the door of his house. He opens the door, and there are 49 of these tribal families standing outside saying, God has visited us told us to flee from our idols and from our demonic darkness and to turn to Jesus Christ tell us how to become Christian hallelujah overnight he suddenly has a church of 600 and it just goes on well a friend of mine who had been a missionary in China and was able to go back into China not letting on that he knew how to speak the different languages and he did a tour of that region and one of the things he did was to find out what had happened to the issue because communism came in the, you know, everybody was driven out and, and contact was lost with this tribe well when he got to this tribe and found out what had happened to them he discovered that of the 270,000 members of this tribe 240,000 were now born again spirit filled believers Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Almost the whole tribe was saved. Now why shouldn't God do that in love? There's, there's not a single biblical reason. For a number of years, as many of you know, my wife and I, we lived and worked in Bombay, a black, iniquitous city. We went there in 1962. There was not one church that preached the gospel. There was no evangelical church in a city then of 5 million people. It's now 15 million people. There was one little tiny brethren assembly that was so bound in legalism that they were not able or willing to reach the rest of the city. I went to the one and only Baptist church. I became the pastor of the Baptist church. I wasn't yet then filled with the Holy Ghost. I found the church had five members, none of whom were saved. And there was a court case going on for possession of the property. I mean, I can't tell you how dark and desperate the whole situation was. Everywhere you could feel the throbbing power of demonic darkness. I haven't time to tell the whole story, but sufficient to say that after a year of being driven to seek God in desperation, my wife and I and about 12 other people who had come to join the church, we were all baptized together in the Holy Ghost and God began to move. Before long the church was full of people. We began to see miracles and things take place, but God really broke on the city. And, and we, went, we moved to a Catholic region of Bombay because part of Bombay was a Portuguese colony. And then the, the, this Portuguese colony was presented to one of, the fam, one of the royal family of Britain as a wedding present. So Bombay became British by some marriage you know, alliance. And so, uh, but it, it already was established as a Catholic community. There's about one and a half million Catholics in Bombay. And, they, and if you mix Catholicism with Hinduism, you get a pretty potent brew. I have never seen anything so dark, so iniquitous, so demonic. I mean, we lived in that community, and I tell you, there were demons everywhere. There was such drunkenness. There wasn't a man that was not a prisoner to alcohol. They would drink some native hooch called toddy, and these men would go out of their mind. You could hear them beating the women. The women were beaten by their grown-up sons or by their husbands every night. There was murders every night. Women would throw themselves down the well in a desperate attempt to get out and just to commit suicide. There was suicide. It's the nearest thing to hell that I've ever lived in. 
I can't tell you this dark, illicitous place. And my wife and I, we lived there in the middle of this for three years, and we began to plant a church. I mean, I've had, I've, I've, we've had every kind of bizarre manifestation. I have had demons attack me in bed. I've had demons try and drive me out by physically assaulting me and my wife. It was rough stuff. And in the middle of this, God brought us to faith for that city. We got the title deed. We clawed painfully a church of 40 people out of that demonic darkness and then all hell was let loose against us. All the power of Rome came against us. All the demonic hordes came against us with the result that that we lost almost all our people. We were down to eight people. My wife and I, we engaged in a prayer battle which, where God taught us some principles which we learned in the heat of battle. We didn't learn them in a textbook. Amen? We just hung on tenaciously to the fact that God's word is true. And according to my Bible, Jesus is Lord, the devil isn't Lord. And that was the bottom line of our simple theology. And we stood our ground by the grace of God. We slugged it out with the devil, just my wife and I. There was no one else in the prayer battle. All the others were finished, flat on their back. There came a place which I could, one Wednesday night, where my, we were forcing ourselves, we had a little meeting room which would be about as big as this. It would be about, and this is where, and we were in our meeting room, we, you know, forcing ourselves to declare the rule and victory of Jesus, although all circumstances said, ah, Jesus isn't Lord around here. We, we prayed, we shouted, we made ourselves dance, although we, we felt like lead in our spirit. Do you know what I mean? We, 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 we fought, and then on that Wednesday night, something broke in the heavens. Now, I was concerned to get my 40 people back. But God had set this thing up. I can only conclude, I was not thinking this way, I knew nothing at all about these things, but I can only conclude now that in this spiritual warfare that we were going on with, we'd come into head-on collision with the Prince Demon. Something powerful and strong was attacking us in a way that I'd never experienced in my life before, and by the grace of God, we fought the good fight of faith. And that demon came off its throne, that's what I can only conclude, because all I know is that suddenly, on that Wednesday night, something broke in the heavenlies, and then that coincided with my birth of my youngest son, we then saw the beginnings of a powerful work of God. I haven't time to tell the whole story, it would take all evening just to tell you. But all I want to say is this, that over the next four years, in that community, and this is not an exaggeration at all, we saw more than 100,000 people saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah! The, The work is still continuing to this day. One young man that I laid hands on in those days, he has now, he's now in his 50s, he was a young man then. And he himself has planted 264 churches in Bombay and 600 across the nation of India. And they're planting out one new church a day. Hallelujah. Now, it began with the Catholics. And we saw this vast multitude of Catholics pouring into the kingdom of God, but now it's spread into the Hindus. We're seeing largely Hindus being saved. One of those evenings, I used to take a Thursday night meeting with, and we, I used to have anything from 600 to 1,000 people come to this Thursday night meeting. I had 60 uh, uh, group leaders who would take careful notes of what I taught, and then they would scatter across the city of Bombay and teach what I taught all over the city of Bombay. And between us, we were reaching between five and 10,000 people in these Bible study groups every week. 
One Thursday evening, because we had gangs in Bombay too, this particular Catholic gang was known as the Lunics. And Carlton was the gang leader. He was about as tall as me, but about three times the size. He was like Mr. Atlas come to life. He was, he was mean and he was tough. And this gang had killed many times and they were the terror of all the shopkeepers in the region. And when they walked into a shop, they, they demanded money. And of course they were on drugs and they were on drink. And they, would, they didn't have guns. They would pull a knife as soon as look at you. Fifteen of these gang members with Carlton came and sat in the front row. And I looked at them and they looked at me and I thought, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> I preached the gospel, gave an invitation, all 15 members came forward, were saved, demons came screaming out of them, they were vomiting and getting rid of all this foul stuff, they were gloriously filled with the Holy Spirit. At least seven or eight of them today are in full-time ministry, possibly, possibly more than that, I, I forget how many exactly. But they have become mighty men of God. I'm just telling you this to tell you that if you get the title deed for Lubbock, there's no reason why this shouldn't happen here. Amen. And so, in the city of Bombay, you cannot count now how many thousands of churches there are. There wasn't one in 1962. Now there are thousands of them preaching the gospel and seeing people saved on a daily basis. Hallelujah. Amen. You see, that's what faith is for, primarily. I have no problem and I believe God for large sums of money to build buildings and to break into new areas. I mean, I'm, I'm all for praying in finances. Please don't misunderstand me. I use my faith, but I don't spend it largely on myself. I'd rather see the kingdom come. I live comfortably. I've got enough. You see, for you, it's sufficiency. For the work, it's abundance. Amen? That's true, in my view, true prosperity teaching. Enough for you and abundance for the work of God. Never ever should the work of God be held up by lack of finance. But you know, that's what, that's what faith is for. It's primarily to take the world over from the devil and bring the kingdom in. That's what it's primarily for. Now, every word that God has said is already spoken and it's there, alive, powerfully waiting to be laid hold of by faith in the realm of the Spirit. But it does need a man or a woman to get hold of it. It's possible that only one person can do it, but it's easier if there are two of you, and it's easier still if there's a little core of you. It doesn't take many. So don't wait for your numbers to go up, just wait for your faith. To come to the place where you know you've got it. You will know when you know you've got it. You see, I have got faith for London. That took me 20 years of prayer. And I expected in the last however many years of my ministry, I did not expect to come to America. That was a big surprise to me. I had, don't feel hurt by this, <laughs> but I had no desire to come here. I thought America's full of teachers and preachers. What do you want another one for? 
So as we planted churches in our area of England, I want, and God was releasing me from those churches, my passion was to go into London and break open that city to get the title deed for London. And that still is my heart. Well, my son is there. He is a, a pastor in one of the most exciting churches in the centre of London. So I'm sort of seeing that burden fulfilled through my son. My youngest son is in the ministry there. And he had a powerful time in the University of London. He started with a little group of 12 very, very wishy-washy Christians. But by the time God had finished with them, through his ministry of faith and his ministry of intercession, they were 150 fighting troops who know how to storm the gates of hell and know how to take things out of the devil's hand for God. And now God's taken him into a wider ministry in the city of London. I pray for London. I'm deeply concerned about it, but I'm not permitted to live there. I'm required by God to live in America because God wants to move powerfully in the United States. I'm not here for, to take meetings. I'm not here. I don't need to come here for a ministry. Please understand me. I'm here because God's put me here because he says, I want to break open the nation of the United States. I want to pour my spirit across this nation. I want to get hold of men and women and bring them to faith to get title deeds for their cities, for their communities, for them to fill this land with my glory and for the vast resources of this nation to no longer be squandered on foolishness and devilish stuff, but to be channeled correctly for the purposes of the kingdom. So this nation become a, become a blessing to the world in a way that God always intended for this nation. Amen. I I'm just hesitate to say this, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I've got the title deed to the United States. You don't know how I pray for this nation and how I love this nation. And yet at the same time, I'm under no illusion as to the demonic darkness that works everywhere. It's, it's, it's wickedly evil. But that will not stop God. And what I want for you is, I want you to say, Oh God, I want to come to the place where you can use me. To come to faith. To get hold of something tangible and to pray until I know I've got the title deed. And obviously, if you're placed by God to live here in Lubbock, then that surely must be your first priority. You see, it requires the faith of a man or a woman to take, to, to, to go into those heavenly realms, take hold of what the prophets have said, and cause it to become manifested on the earth. God's righteousness requires the faith of a man or a woman. Do you understand that? It has to be like that. You see, Jesus had to become a man. God had to become a man in order to intervene in the affairs of this world. He had to be a man to make his saviourhood legal. And all the days that Jesus lived upon the earth, he lived upon the earth, although he was almighty God, gloriously fully God, yet all the days he lived on earth, he never ever stepped out of his humanity into the power of his own deity. Do you understand that? He never ever once moved, lived, or functioned as God because that would have made his saviourhood illegal. Although he was good, he laid us although he was God, he laid aside his deity and lived in the constricting boundaries of his humanity. And so like any other man, he had to live his life by faith in what the Word had said and what the Spirit said. Amen? Amen? 
Now the devil knows this perfectly well. And what frightens the devil is men and women of faith. Because if they've got faith, they can take hold of the word of God and they can establish uh, establish it upon the earth. And once that happens, that's the end of the devil's kingdom. And that's the reason why the devil fights faith. He can't stop God speaking because God's already spoken. The word's already there. Now, for that word to become active and manifested, it needs faith. So the only way he can hold up his destruction is to prevent men and women coming to faith. God doesn't need to say anything more. He's already said it. It's already there. Everything necessary to destroy the devil and wipe him off the face of the earth, it's already been spoken. It just requires men and women to get hold of it and say, I'll have that. I'll have that for my community, for my nation, for my city, for my family. Right now, in this time-space world in which I live, I'm laying hold of what the prophets have said and it's going to be manifested. And for that very reason, the devil fights faith with all his might. That's why it's a fight of faith. That's why Paul's whole life was a, was a fight of faith. Now the devil attacks things like your health, your finances, your possessions. He will attack relationships. He will try and divide between husband and wife, between wife and kids, between leaders in a church. He will do anything and everything he can to cause division. And the reason he does this is because when he attacks these things, we can begin to doubt the trustworthiness of God's word. You see, he's not really after your money. He's after your faith. Although he may attack your finances. He's not really after your possessions. He's after your faith, although he may attack your possessions. He's not really after your illness. He's after your faith, although he may attack your health. See, if he can get you to doubt God's word, you're out of the battle. And God, because he's absolutely righteous, will permit the devil to try our faith. He's allowed to test our faith. And listen to me, in a severe case of testing... The God will permit the devil to take away from us the object of our faith. When that happens, it's important not to let go of your faith. You mustn't confuse your faith with the object of your faith. You're praying for somebody to get healed, and they die. It happens. Doesn't mean God caused it, but he permits the devil to do his devilish work to see and let the devil see the the reality of our faith. But once we understand these principles, it becomes a dangerous game. But your faith can be tested and, and you know, don't listen to all this stuff that says the life of faith is push button easy. It isn't. It's a fight from beginning to end and you do sometimes lose. But the important thing is to hang on to your faith. You see, if you were saving up money to buy a house with cash, imagine that, and one day you were nearly at the point where you were ready to buy the house and someone else came along and took the house from under your nose, you would not take all your money out of the bank. 
stick it on a, on, on, the, on a bonfire in the yard and say, say, ah, what's the use of saving all this money? I've lost the house. You'd be mad if you did that. Don't do it with your faith. You see, faith has purchasing power. And tried faith has greater purchasing power. If the devil robs you of something, then you can claim something bigger, providing you keep your faith. If you lose your faith, you've lost everything. Hello. See, I'm not promising you a push-button easy life where you'll always get what you're praying for. Even if God said it, you can sometimes lose it. And that's very, very confusing. Amen? Has it happened to you? Well, it, it will if it hasn't. And you've got to learn to handle the whole good fight of faith. You may get wounded, you may even lose a battle, but don't give up on the war. Amen? Don't give up on the war. You're going to win. Right, I want to teach you one more principle. I don't know how long I've been preaching. I want to teach you one more principle, which is very important, and that is the principle of restitution. Alright, very important to know this principle. Now, how many of you clearly understand that the devil is a thief and a robber? How many of you agree with that? You understand that? I don't have to find scriptures to prove it, okay? We all understand that, alright? Now, in the Old Testament, we have many, many principles taught us which were expressing the heart of God. Now, the law of that principle is taken away in Christ, but don't throw away the principle. Do you hear what I'm saying? The principle is genuinely expressing part of the heart of God. That's why Jesus said, not one jot or tittle from the law will be taken from the law. He said, that's not what it's going to be like in the kingdom. But what you find is a better way to get hold of those principles. It's the way of faith through grace rather than by effort through law. But the principles do not change. The ceremonial law gives place to the reality. But the principles of the Old Testament teaches many, many things about the nature and the heart of God. And one of these is the principle of restitution. Come with me to Exodus 22, please. I want to teach you this principle. Exodus 22. And everything that I'm teaching you, I have practiced these things for years, and they work, alright? I'm not teaching you theory, I'm telling you what I've learned in the hard school of faith, and I want you to get into it too. Right, Exodus 22, we'll read there. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's a principle. So if a thief robs, takes away and destroys, he has to pay back fourfold or fivefold according to what he has stolen and destroyed. Alright? Come down to verse 4. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox, a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. In other words, if you get it back after the devil's tried to steal it and you get it back intact, he still has to pay twofold compensation so you end up with three times what you started with. Alright, one more little thing. Come to 1 Corinthians 9, so we understand what's being taught here. 1 Corinthians 9, and it says there in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Okay? Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Well, is it? 
Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who ploughs should plough in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it a great thing that we reap material things from you? In other words, he's teaching the principle that full-time Christian workers who labour in the word are worthy of being properly blessed financially. Amen? If you go to 1 Timothy 5.17, you get the same principle, except there he's worth double honour. And then it says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. So what do oxen represent? Not necessarily apostles, but full-time Christian workers given to the ministry. Possibly it particularly applies to apostles. But let's just say it applies to full-time Christian workers. So I want to ask you as a church, have you had men given to this church who were oxen for God, given to the work of the ministry, and then the devil snatched them away? And he stole them from you? It's happened in pretty well every church I've ever been in. They go off because of some deception that comes in and they get offended and off, and you know the devil's stolen them from you. They weren't led on by God into another ministry. They were ripped out by the deception, lies and thieving habits of the devil. Alright, well, if that's happened to you, you need to file a claim of fivefold compensation. Amen? See, listen, when you start to learn this, it becomes so expensive for the devil to try your faith <laughs> that he gives up on it. It becomes so expensive for the devil to try your faith <laughs> that he gives up on it, really. But if you just take it like a, you know, like a, a nothing, if you let him walk all over you, he'll keep robbing you. But once you say, hey, wait a minute, devil, I've got rights in this matter. You're paying me back fivefold, you're paying me back fourfold, and you file a claim in faith, and he has to pay, it, he soon takes his hands off you. So if you lose an oxen, it's fivefold. If you lose a sheep, what's a sheep? Well, it's a believer, isn't it? So how many sheep have been robbed out of this church? Well, file a claim, fourfold. Amen. Count them up and say, right, we're having them back. By the end of this year, you're paying, Satan. Amen. Come on. Amen. Now, I want you to apply this personally to your business. If the day, and I'm not talking about if you've been a fool. I'm not talking about if you've been unrighteous. I'm talking about when you've lived a righteous, godly life, obeying the principles of Scripture, but the devil's still been able to rob you financially, he's going to have to pay for it. Yes. Amen? And if he steals it, but doesn't keep it, but gives you harassment and trouble to get it back, you can still claim twofold. I could tell you many, many stories. I'll tell you one story quickly. I worked with a tremendous brother in India called John Babu in the the region of Andhra Pradesh. It's a central state in India. We've seen a powerful move of God going on there. We've seen 27,000 village Hindus saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and established in 70-odd churches. We've seen every miracle. I tell you, when I go there, I, I, I mean, I just feel like Superman. 
It's just the anointing of God. We've seen blind eyes open. We've seen the cripple walk. We've had four well-attested cases of people being raised from the dead. God is moving there in a powerful, powerful way. And, and I've taught them tithing and, 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 and offering. And I tell you, Indians are so poor, they live on about $30 a month, these village Indians. $30. But they still tithe and they still give offerings above their tithe. And God's beginning to prosper them and begin to bless them. And I believe absolutely in that. But when it comes to major capital expenditure, I mean, I believe it's, it's my job to go to God and get the necessary finances for some of these wonderful buildings we've been able to build there. I don't send out begging letters, I just tell my father about it. And we built a wonderful facility in, in Hyderabad. We have a, a wonderful meeting place, we have a Bible school, we've got buildings for um, a children's school. It's a, it's a marvellous facility we have there. And when we were building this main auditorium, which takes about a thousand or so people, we'd come to foundation level and, and there was a hold-up and we couldn't get through. There's a great temple to the to the deity Kali, one of the deities of Hinduism, this goddess of destruction, a foul, vicious, demonic beast. And this, this thing was at war with us. In fact, it manifested itself 40 feet high in the ground. From, it, it stood over this compound, glaring at us, said, I'm going to destroy you. This actually, we, about eight people saw it simultaneously wasn't a dream, it physically manifested. And cobras were crawling up the walls of this room that we were in, but they weren't real ones, they were demonically manifested cobras. They went straight through the ceiling into the next floor. Because you see weird things happen in the demonic realm. Don't let it worry you. Jesus is Lord, amen? Amen? But we were in absolute vicious conflict with this, with this demonic deity whose temple was just up the road and we were now attacking his kingdom and moving him out of the way and he didn't like it. So the authorities then came down on us and said we gave you permission to build this prayer hall. We've decided that if you don't complete the building within six weeks we'll take away your building permit. John called me and I said, John, that smells like the devil. I said, how much do we need to finish? He said, $30,000. I said, I'm going to prayer on this. A lady in Scotland that I had never spoken to, she just sat in a meeting that I preached at, and she was praying that very night. God spoke to my wife and I as we were having our prayer walk in the morning, and to each of us separately, God said, I'm going to send you $10,000 as a first installment. And this lady was praying, God said to her, send $10,000 to Alan Vincent. And this check came the next day, and I knew what it was for. It was just made payable to Alan Vincent. I could have bought a new car with it. But that would have been, obviously, not legally wrong, but it would have been morally wrong, wouldn't it? I knew what it was for. So I, I just sent the check by the quickest route to my dear friend in India, and I sent it through the banking system, which is the worst way to send money in India, because the banking system's corrupt. And someone along the way stole the money. And when John called me, he said, the money hasn't come. I said, the devil's in this. And I, got, I mean, I don't usually talk to the devil, but I did on this occasion. And I said, now listen, Satan, I know the principles. And I'm giving you one of two options. I said, either you return that money straight away. Because I, I absolutely bar you. I, 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 I bind you in the name of Jesus. You can't rob that money. And secondly, I put a stay order on that, that county 
municipality command we are going to finish that building they're going to withdraw this commandment we're going to see that building finished and I come against you in the name of Jesus if you return that money straight away then all I will claim from you is twofold compensation I said well we're finishing that building and I said if you don't pay it back straight away and decide to permanently steal it you will pay it seven times I'll show you that in a minute see Proverbs 631 it's an even better verse there. I'll show it to you in a minute. It says that if a thief steals, he has to repay sevenfold, even if it costs him all his house. I like that bit. I have no mercy on the devil. I don't even feel sorry for him. Anyway, John called me again. He said, the money's turned up. They've caught, they've caught the bank clerk. So I said, oh, he's taken the cheaper way out then. <laughs> so we got the $10,000. Two, listen, two days later, I got another check for $20,000. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we got our $30,000, we finished the building, and it's been used for the glory of God for a number of years now. You see, the devil has to pay. And I want you to start thinking now. Now, listen, let me say this again. Not your own foolishness. I'm talking about when you righteously live right before God, but that, like, say if you're in business, someone snatched a contract away from you because you wouldn't do the dirty thing. You know what I mean? Or you didn't get promotion because you stood for Jesus. Now, to total up all the money that you've lost. Where you've been robbed and file a claim for compensation and start to make him pay where he's stolen from you in other ways if you've lost a husband or you've, been, you've had your, your marriage ripped apart by the devil ask God for wisdom as to how you should file for compensation the worst test of all is to have a loved one taken from you it can happen and if it does then you need to ask God how you claim compensation. In that case, I believe God gives you back a hundredfold. Haven't time to go into all this. I could, but I, 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 I've heard God say that to me. I had, a few years ago, when I was preaching along similar lines, I had a couple come to me, and they said to me after the meeting, they said, we have a four-year-old daughter that just died suddenly in the night in one of these mysterious cot deaths, and we just felt that was just the devil robbing us of our beautiful little daughter. They said, what compensation can we claim? I said, I don't know. Let's pray. So we, we just held hands and began to pray. And then God spoke to the woman. She said, I know. She said, God's just spoken to me. He said that if we would go out into a children's ministry, God would give us back hundreds of times over for the little one that's been stolen from us. And so that day they started to move in a children's ministry. And now they have seen not hundreds but thousands of kids one for Jesus and, and they've had more children I mean they've had further children and so the, of course you can never replace that precious one that's been lost but, but the pain has been wonderfully helped by the Lord and they've seen hundreds of kids come to Jesus the devil has to pay Amen you file compensation now let's look at a few scriptures come to James first of all do you like I mentioned Proverbs 6.31. That's the one for sevenfold. That's the one I always use. Okay? I want you to come to James. James chapter 1. And I want to go to verse 2. 
James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What it literally says in the Greek is this. It says, be delirious with delight. You think... Be delirious with delight when you fall into all kinds of trials. Sounds of the guy's nuts. But you see, James knows something. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. The word for patience, the Greek word is the word hupomone, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E, hupomone, and that means long-term cheerful endurance. It's not enough just to stick it out. You've got to actually be happy about it. Long, long-term cheerful endurance. No, knowing that, that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now listen to verse 4. Listen. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, Lacking nothing. You see, when you've let this do its work in you, you end up many, many times richer. And whatever you lacked before the trial, you now are not lacking after the trial. You end up the richer. Let me try and give you an illustration. I've got a piece of 4 by 2 timber here. I come to Doug here, and with all my might, I hit him over the head with it. And the blood spurts, and the head's throbbing, and he says, oh, hallelujah. Now, the pain is intense, but here, here's this guy grinning with the blood running down his face. What? How can he do that? Because he knows something. You see, let's imagine there's a principle that every time I hit him over the head with my piece of wood, I have to put $20,000 into his bank account. Now, it's amazing how much pain he can endure. Doesn't reduce the pain, but it's amazing what he can take. So I hit him. Bang! $40,000. His head's going... Aah! Bang! $60,000. It's amazing how much he can endure. You know, suddenly, meaningless trial can become very purposeful when you get hold of the principle. Count it all joy! When you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith isn't futile, it works patience. Let patience have its perfect work, and then you will end up complete and perfect, lacking absolutely nothing. Hallelujah. Come to Peter. See, all these guys knew about this. Come to 1 Peter. Verse 5. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. How can you at the same time, because that word greatly rejoice means to be leaping for joy and exceeding glad. And here's this picture that Peter's painting. Here's someone grieving because of their trials and at the same time leaping for joy. How can you do that? Because you know what's coming to you if you keep your faith. You see, the Lord Jesus, it says, counted the cross. It says he counted it all joy. Despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the joy of what he was purchasing through the cross 
by his faith, wiped out all the pain, although the pain was extreme, the joy was even greater than the pain. Didn't take away the pain, but it made it all joyfully purposeful. Amen? Let's read on in 1 Peter, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, you jump for joy, and you are exceedingly glad, though now for a little while, if need be, (coughs) you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to the praise and honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when faith goes through the fire, it comes out the other side more precious than gold. You feel like it becomes platinum faith. It has greater purchasing power. And whatever you lose in terms of objects of your faith, keep your faith and you can buy something better out the other side. Amen? I'm just looking at the time. Can you take another 15 minutes? Alright, let's let's go on to that. Hmm? Well, I know you can only take so much, but you can listen to the tape afterwards. Alright, come back to 1 Timothy 6. I want to come on to this last thing that we mentioned this morning. Which says this, it says, And have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then it says, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. I want to deal with that. It was this that totally changed me. You see, about... It would be almost ten years ago now, eight years to ten years ago, we had the most amazing facilities in Britain. We had 17 acres of land. We had buildings worth about, say, five million dollars of buildings, which were a redundant senior high school, which we were renting from the authorities, and we were only paying five thousand pounds, say about seven and a half thousand dollars a year for these facilities. We had a growing church. We had one of the best Christians. We had the biggest Christian school in the country. We were establishing a Bible school, and this was our Canaan. God had given it to us most miraculously, and they said to us, "You can rent it for for now, but eventually we will sell it to you at some low rental, in a low price, and uh, so you're assured of a future here." People began to buy homes and settle round this, which was going to be the centre of our work in Britain. We had the best facilities in Britain. And we were going on from strength to strength and we were seeing one answer to faith after another. I mean, God was just blessing us. We were one of the fastest and most significant growing churches in the United Kingdom. And then suddenly a developer came to the county authorities and offered them $15 million for the site. They they actually changed the law. They passed new laws. uh, Reneged on their promise to us and sold the thing over our heads. And in, we got two weeks notice to get out. I had a school for 270 kids. A church of 400 growing all the time. And what was more, I was utterly and absolutely devastated. And I had people attack me. People who said, well, we bought our home and you said this was ours for life. I didn't actually say that, but they sold me that they had heard God 
in all kinds of, you know, but it's amazing. When, when people are hurt and disappointed, they turn around on you. And I got viciously attacked. One of my main leaders tore away 200 people, went off to do his own thing. And I tell you, I was bleeding all over. And I sat in my study and I thought, I'll never ever be able to move in faith again. I can't explain what happened. You know, even to this day, I can't explain. All I know is, now, the principle of restoration, the devil's going to pay back. I, I haven't time to tell the whole story, but bit by bit, we're claiming our inheritances. One thing after another is coming back to us, but it's been a long, long fight. All I want to do is to tell you what happened one morning in my study as I read these verses. I suddenly saw something which I want you to see tonight. I suddenly saw Jesus as the great example of a man with fighting faith. Do you understand that the whole of the life of Jesus, he only knew who he was by faith? Do you understand that? How did he know he was the Son of God? By faith. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He had as much temptation to doubt who he was, to doubt the kingdom, to doubt that his father would keep his word as you and I do. But he fought a good, good fight of faith. I want to pick up a few things very quickly. Come to Hebrews in chapter 5. <coughs> into one verse. Can you stick with me? I know I'm testing your patience tonight. But let the trial of your faith <laughs> be more precious than God. I just want to finish this. I haven't got a chance to finish it any other time. Come to Hebrews 5 verse 7. It says of the Lord Jesus, listen who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death he was heard because of his godly fear <coughs> now what I want you to see is this this is describing the battle of faith in the garden of Gethsemane now very quickly you probably know this already Jesus had to become the 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 trash can, the dustbin, the refuge disposal vessel into which God dumped all the sins of Adam's race. Do you understand that? All the sins of Adam's race were heaped upon the Lord Jesus. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Every act of wickedness that ever man has ever committed was all gathered into a concentration. And it was that that was in the cup that Jesus was being asked to drink. He was to become filthy and foul with the total sin of the whole of Adam's race. And he had never known any sin. Imagine what it was like to become filthy with all that stuff. When I was casting out demons out of a, a horribly demon-possessed man, this man was one of the worst sexual perverts I've ever met. He not only was a homosexual, but he went with animals. I mean, he was so foul and filthy and corrupt and dirty. And this man was so gripped by these demonic powers and he was crying out to Jesus to save him. And Jesus did save him. And we were casting all these filthy, foul demons out of this man. And as we were ministering to him, I felt the filthiness of all these things come upon me. If you can understand what I'm saying, for a few moments, I felt what it was like to be a sexual pervert. I felt all this filthiness come upon me. And I tell you, when these demons had come out and this man had been gloriously delivered, I wanted to wash and wash and wash to get all this filthiness off me. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Imagine what it was like for Jesus. This pure, sinless, spotless one took into his body every foul, obscene, filthy, wicked, dark, demonic act that man has ever committed and they were all laid upon him. 
He became foul with the filthiness of millions and millions and millions and millions of sins of wicked men and women over the face of the whole earth. It also says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, not only did the acts of sin come upon him, but the nature of sin came upon him. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so as all this came upon him in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, oh Father, let this cup pass from me. And Father said, no son, it can't pass from you. You have to become the sin bearer. And he submitted to that. But he was fighting a battle with strong crying and tears. And the Bible tells us he was praying. Great drops of blood were coming out of him in the battle. Because this is what he was praying for. You see, in that Hebrews 5, 7 verse there, there's a little Greek preposition. Which is untranslatable in English. And it's a little preposition. It's just two letters in Greek. E-K, ek. And it's one of the prepositions that has movement. There's nothing like it in the English language. And what it means is that you're inside something and you come up out of it. And this is the word that's used here. So he wasn't praying to be saved from death. He was praying to be saved out from within death. Got it? Now, I don't know why the translators in the English Bible don't put that phrase in, because it makes it a lot simpler. Because if he was praying not to die, he wasn't hurt. But if he was praying to go into the deepest depths of death and then come up out of it, he was hurt. Amen? Now listen, the claim of death is upon sin, right? 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. So as Jesus became filthy with the sin of the whole of Adam's race, and as he went down into death, death closed its jaws more powerfully round him millions of times over than any other man or woman that's ever died. Do you understand that? Yeah. So if ever there was someone who should never have risen from the dead, it's Jesus. But before he ever went to death, he fought the good fight of faith and he got the title deed for his resurrection in his back pocket before he went to the cross. Do you understand that? See, that's what the battle of Gethsemane was all around. He was fighting the good fight of faith. <coughs> he knew, although death was going to claim him more than any other man, millions of times over, there was glory and there was power in the Father to raise him up out from within death. And his resurrection wasn't simply the physical raising of a man out of death. It was delivering a man from the power of sin millions and millions and millions of times more than any other man. No one has ever tasted death like Jesus. No one, no one has ever gone down into death the way Jesus did. No one's gone into the depths of hell the way Jesus did. No one, no one, no one has ever been anywhere near he's been. But the power of God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. And before he ever went to his death, he'd already fought and won the battle of faith. He already had the title deed in his back pocket. Can you see that? Oh, try and see it. Try and see it. So, you see, that's why the disciples never went anywhere preaching the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You see, that's a greater physical... See, the point of the resurrection is not his physical resurrection. It's the deliverance from all that sin. 
It's bringing him up out of the very depths of hell. It's leaving behind all the perversion of Adam's race. Because he died in all that perversion, but he raised absolutely clear and free from it. If you've been united in a death like his, certainly also you will be his resurrection. I better not get on to that. I could go on for hours on this. Can you, can you hear what I'm saying? So as Jesus left the Garden of Gethsemane, he walked to his crucifixion as a man who already had the title deed for his resurrection. He knew. And it was, it was by faith. It was not any other way. He, this glorious man, had fought and won a battle of faith that he might rise from the dead. And it wasn't just for him. It was for you. And it was for me. And then he was put on trial. Come with me to Matthew. I just want to... I'm trying to be as quick as I can. Come to Matthew. I'm trying you. Matthew 26. And verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus said to him, verse 64, it is, it's as you say, or thou hast said. But what it lit, if you want to translate the Greek literally here, there's no better translation than the Americanism, you bet I am. That's, that's, a, that's a great translation. That's exactly what he's saying. Tell us if you're the Christ! Now listen, here is Jesus tied up like a chicken, he's been beaten to a pulp, he looks like a ridiculous lost cause. The, the authorities have come against him, they can do what they like with him. The only evidence that he has, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King, that he has a kingdom, that he will rise from the dead, is the battle of faith that he has just brought. He's living every minute of this by the good confession of his faith. Now, it's a, there's a strong tradition, which I personally believe, that the young Pharisee Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, was a member of the Sanhedrin and was an eyewitness to these events. There's good reasons to believe it's true, and I believe it's true. I believe that Paul, the young, zealous Pharisee Saul, was watching this good confession of Jesus Christ. Tell us if you're the Christ! You bet I am. And you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And there wasn't a shred of evidence to prove that he had any reason to say this, except he'd got a title deed for it in his pocket. There's a good confession. Here's Jesus, the fighter. He was fighting the fight of faith. And I tell you, as I began to see this, I, I worshipped and I worshipped this glorious one, this mighty fighter. And not only say, yes, I'm the Christ, you've said it, you bet I am. But he says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You see, I'm already in faith. I'm in the kingdom. There's no sign of it anywhere. It looks like the devil's supreme. It looks like that I'm all washed up. I'm finished. I'm God. But I tell you, I believe my God. Yes. And so what do they do? They beat him in the face. They didn't say, oh, sorry, Jesus, we made a mistake. No, the persecution got worse. They beat him to a pulp. It says in Scripture, his face was so marred, it was unrecognisable as a man. They beat him. I mean, they, I tell you, those, those Roman soldiers were, were mean guys. They 
punished him and popped him. And there was just the bruises. There was the spit where they spat on him, where they pulled out his beard. And it was all mixed up with these growing bruises. And then they stuck a crown of thorns on his head. They put a mocking robe on him. And they dragged him off to, to Pontius Pilate. And all his face was puffed up, this pathetic, tragic man pursuing this idiotic lost cause. A kingdom? Don't make me laugh. The Son of God? Don't be silly. A king? Ha, ha, ha! Who do you think you are? Saying, this world is yours and you've come to take it over and that the power of hell can't resist you or your kingdom? Don't be foolish! Can't you see the evidence before your eyes? I've got the title deed. I fought a good fight. I've made a good confession and I'm going to continue in the teeth of this vicious, violent opposition. I'm going to continue my good confession. So they drag him off to Pontius Pilate. Come to John chapter 18. And then in verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And here it comes again. Jesus said to him, You bet I am. It's the same phrase. You bet I'm a king. I mean, there wasn't anything that looked like a king. All the evidence was of a foolish, pathetic man that was about to be annihilated by the power of Rome and by the power of those religious authorities. Where, where, where is there ever any evidence? that you're not crazy a man. Are you a king then? You bet I am. You know, as those eyes of Jesus fixed upon the eyes of Pilate, the rest of his face was just a broken, bruised pulp, but all those eyes. And as he looked at those eyes, Pilate knew that he was telling the truth. And as the little zealot Pharisee Saul looked upon those eyes. He knew he was telling the truth. See, these were the pricks that he couldn't kick against. <clears throat> and so when they finally crucified Jesus, Pilate wrote over the cross the king of the Jews in Latin and Hebrew and Greek and the Pharisee said, oh, don't write that. Say that he said he was. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. I know who this man is. But I just haven't got the guts to confess who he is. And so he went to the cross. Now that wasn't the end of it. Just come with me. I'm being as quick as I can. Come to Psalm 22. One of the most amazing Psalms of Scripture. <coughs> Psalm 22 can only have been written because the, the, the King David had a revelation of Calvary a thousand years before it took place in time. He must have seen the whole thing. Have you ever read that psalm? Marveled. It's an absolute, accurate, detailed, eyewitness description of a man being crucified, of Jesus being crucified. And of course, the first line was what Jesus cried out, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Because, you see, when he needed his father most, because he was laden with the sin of all of Adam's race, and the father could not look upon sin, a gap as wide as hell came between father and son. And he was there in lost, demonic, black darkness, saying, Oh, Father! Father! Why have you forsaken me? The father couldn't look upon his sin laden son 
Now, in the blackness of that, Jesus, and I tell you, this is when I began to worship, and I just pray you'll see this. Jesus didn't say, oh, poor me, how terrible. Oh, I'm suffering. Oh, he begins in his spirit to rise up, and he, be he begins to fight a good fight of faith. I mean, we haven't time to go into it all, but just look at it. In the first verses, it describes the physical suffering. Verse 49, poured out like water. It describes before that the demonic assaults that are upon him. I poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax. Verse 16, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they've divided my garments among them. You see, all he had for company was the darkness of hell, jeering demons. We've got him! We've got him! We've got him! And mocking men saying, ha, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Jeering men, rejoicing demons, and an absent father separated from him by the, the void of hell. But there's something in this man, the man Christ Jesus, that's a fighter of faith that I have come to absolutely worship. Because there on the cross, he starts to fight the good fight of faith. You look at it. <clears throat> It changes in verse 21, 21. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse, you have answered me. Lord, although I can't see you, I can't feel you, because the blackness of hell is all around me, I know you're there. See, you may go into a bit of demonic darkness, but you've never been what Jesus has been through. I know you're there. Listen to verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's using this Hebrew word, halal. You know what halal is? It's the word hallelujah. It means to rave. It means to praise. It means to be extravagantly foolish. It means to be overwhelmingly abandoned in extravagant praise and worship. To dance, to leap for joy. He says, I'm going to be praising you in the midst of a great congregation. You see, by faith, he's reaching down to get hold of the church. Yes. See, he's got the title deed for his resurrection before he went to the cross. Now on the cross, he's starting to rob the devil of everything. Yeah. One by one, he said, right, I'll have the church. Thank you very much. He puts it into his back pocket. He's got the title deed for the church. And it's there on the cross, not in some air-conditioned studio, but on the cross, he's fighting this amazing fight. Yes, and I suspect that the Apostle Paul, or the zealot Saul, as he then was, was watching all this. The centurion who executed him, when he finally died, he said, I have never ever seen a man. It says, when he saw the way that he died, he bowed the knee and said, this is the Son of God. You see, he'd seen many men die. He'd never seen a man in charge of his own execution. He'd never seen a man appointing the moment when it was time to go. He'd never seen a man fighting a good fight of faith, confessing these good confessions. He'd never seen glory radiate from a man as he did from that man, and he became converted. Just imagine what was happening to the Apostle Paul. He was getting deeply impacted by this. Come on, we, we better come to a conclusion now. Come to verse 24. 
He says, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. Although it seems like he has, although the gap is as wide as hell, he says, I don't believe the feeling of hell, I'm believing in the faithfulness of my God. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great congregation. Come to verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And listen, all the families of the nations. You see, 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 the families of the nations.